This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of sect? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material I wanted to uh, mention because this this is a short part of the book, or like you know, a, not a very significant or not a very uh, in depth part of the book, but uh, this kind of did make me want to do like a, an episode about Elvis because there is like an mm. interesting digression having to do with Elvis uh, mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, it's in the middle of his chapter about the, the death list of the people in Lauren Canyon, uh, Lauren, yeah. uh, Lauren Canyon who died, uh, you know, under mysterious circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he's just, he ta- mentions Elvis really apropos of, of that. And then he just says, uh, speaking of Elvis, he arrived in LA in 1956 to begin what would prove to be a prolific film career and that would continue throughout the 1960s and would result in the inexcusable creation of nearly three dozen motion pictures. In the, nearly, uh, in the early years of his film career, Elvis reportedly spent his off hours hanging out with two of his best Hollywood pals, a couple of young roommates and Canyonites named Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams. In later years, Presley's backing musicians, considered to be among the best session musicians in the business, were in high demand among the Laurel Canyon crowd. Elvis's bass player, for example, can be heard on some of the Doors tracks. The mm. entire band was recruited by Papa John Phillips to play on his less-than-memorable solo project. Mike Nesmith's critically acclaimed Post Monkeys project, the first national band, okay, uh, mm. featured Presley's band as well. Graham Parsons, who there's a whole chapter on, you know, someone who mm-hmm. uh, died very mysteriously, also hired Elvis's band to back him up on the two solo albums he recorded at what proved to be the twilight of his life and career. Uh, those two, and this is uh, a mention of, of Emmylou Harris, you know, uh, yep. someone who performed with uh, with with Connor Overs, who we, we've mentioned in the past. Uh, so, yeah. you know, there's yeah. a, kind mm-hmm. of a little sus link to the, the Saddle Creek world here. Uh, yeah. These two solo efforts by Parsons, by the way, prominently featured the voice of a young singer slash guitarist named Emmylou Harris, a relatively late arrival to the canyon scene. Harris was the daughter, brace yourselves here for real shocker folks, of a career U.S. Marine Corps officer. As with so many other characters in the story, she grew up in the outlying suburbs of Washington, D.C., primarily in Woodbridge, Virginia, which happens to be the home of an imposingly large Army research and development installation known as the Harry Diamond Laboratories Woodbridge Research Facility. In 1972, during the time that Parsons and Harris were recording and performing together, columnist Jack Anderson revealed that experiments to control human behavior with science fiction devices are being conducted secretly at the Army's high-fence Harry Diamond Laboratories in Washington. Ultimately, human guinea pigs will be used to test the devices. Although the, a classified memorandum in our hands specifies the tests are not for riot and civilian disturbance control, the memo admits the general purpose is short time span control of human behavior. All right. It sounds yeah, as though no, Emily Harris probably fit right in with the rest <laughs> of the World Canyon crowd. Uh, yeah. yeah, just one last thing uh, oh, that yeah, he notes yeah. about Elvis. Uh, 
But here I seem to have digressed from my discussion of Elvis. Yeah, completely. Uh, which it was itself a digression. Which was, if I remember correctly, itself a digression. Oh, yeah, he says that uh, afterwards. Uh, from our discussion of Ricky Nelson. Given, though, uh, that he had only peripheral connections to the Royal Canyon, I guess I don't really have much more to say about Elvis other than that he reportedly died on August 16th, 1977, a victim of a drug overdose at the age of 42. As with Morrison, however, there have been persistent rumors that Elvis didn't actually die at all, but rather reinvented himself to escape the fishbowl. Also, as with Morrison, Elvis apparently had a keen interest in the occult, particularly the writings of Madame Blavatsky. Ooh. Uh, cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. They that classified memorandum they were talking about specifies the tests were for riot and civil disturbance control, but the general purpose was for short time span control. Of are they talking about implants? Oh, yeah. Are they talking um, about, like, oh, I guess, yeah, They uh, it says they are for, sorry, it was confusing because it was sort of although. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all right, where it's, you'd think that, how is the, the difference between ride and self-service control and short-time span control, like, why, what, how are those things at, at odds or in although, but yeah, I guess they are for, yeah, all right, whatever. So yeah, and I guess maybe sonic, ride control, <sighs> yeah, sonic but, weaponry, yeah, maybe. It seems like it's more of an and uh then yeah but whatever uh maybe that didn't sound as as spooky back then that you would use it to control riots because there were a lot of riots i don't know uh in the early 70s um but um i guess so yeah um yeah i feel like it's almost written in a way to almost make it seem like i don't know but uh yeah those two things are the same i would think but whatever um yeah anything that has to do with uh like control human behavior but they're for riot control whatever anyway yeah so there was also uh, yeah there was uh, also something um with elvis's manager there was like oh yeah colonel tom parker <laughs> right off the bat i mean yeah i don't know if he was he was uh, a colonel i think he wasn't just a kentucky colonel oh yeah that was there was a weird connection okay like i had no idea or i'd forgotten that there's like a phil hartman connection um and mcgowan finds phil i remember when phil hartman died that was that was like bizarre and tragic uh allegedly shot by his wife who then committed suicide um but uh but i guess like phil hartman is a uh, he he writes in most people's minds phil hartman is not associated with the laurel canyon scene of the late 60s early 70s but as it turns out hartman did indeed have substantial ties to that scene to begin with during the time that Jimi hendrix lived in la in the spacious mansion just north of the log cabin on laurel canyon boulevard Hartman worked for him as a roadie. Soon after that, Phil found work as a graphic artist, and he quickly found himself much in demand by the Laurel Canyon rock royalty. In addition to designing album covers for both Poco and America, Hartman also designed a readily recognizable rock symbol that has endured for over 40 years, the distinctive CSN logo for Crosby, Sills, and Nash. Hartman was also the brother of record executive club proprietor John Hartman, who was an associate of David Geffen. Hartman had begun his career as a protege of Elvis Handler to Colonel Tom Parker, who in the 1940s had worked with cowboy actor log cabin owner Tom Mix. And Tom Mix, in turn, had frequently used the Spawn movie ranch as a filming location. That same ranch later became the home of Charles Manson and his girls, including Lynette Squeaky Fromm, who happened to have been a high school chum of Phil Hartman. <sighs> okay um <laughs> yeah a lot of people knew squeaky from growing up which is also very bizarre um she went to high school with phil hartman and yeah so i guess tom mix owned the log cabin he was a western actor who lived in you know laurel Canyon, and he owned the house that 
Frank Zappa eventually moved into and then uh, hurriedly moved out of um, right after the Manson murders. <laughs> Uh, uh, into like uh, a secure yeah. compound uh, basically there's even a weird mention in here that he doesn't go much into it but um, uh, yeah he basically he left like shortly after uh, and Zappa's move and his newfound obsession with security was said to be prompted in part by a curious visit to the log cabin in the summer of 1969 the summer of the Tate LaBianca murders a man identified only as quote the raven arrived wielding a gun <laughs> Little else seems to be known about the incident, oh, but it right. is interesting yeah. to note that just a few years earlier, a guy who was very fond of that moniker had arrived in California, also known as the Reverend Jim Jones of the People's Temple. He would become a rather infamous figure. Um, yeah, yikes. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> what, so what, like Jim Jones came with a gun to threaten Frank Zappa in 1969? Uh, yeah, well, that's one of those things that's like, uh, uh, you know, uh, like yeah, speculating I, that he was the Raven. But yeah, like, uh, yeah, it does odd, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, know. Uh, huh. Well, you know, speaking of spooky deaths, do we want to talk a little about Graham Parsons? And yeah, his that's an spooky interesting death? chapter of the book. Um, yeah, uh, yeah yeah i like uh, i'm a big fan of of you know graham parsons i always liked him a lot um mm-hmm. and both in the the flying burrito brothers and the birds and uh, the sweetheart of the rodeo a great album um mm-hmm. and uh, his two solo albums which i guess were were the elvis's band played on um yes yeah but he was like, he was like a troubled and kind of weird guy another thing I don't know if we mentioned yet, but that like uh, a thing McGowan points out a lot is that a lot of these people, particularly the more troubled ones who ended up dying, were described by people who knew them as having somewhat dissociative personalities. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yes. And uh, a lot yeah. of them, some of them had ended up in uh, kind of like the Grateful Dead scene. Like a lot of them had ended up in mental hospitals or in jail on drug possession stuff uh in their adolescence and or they just came from very abusive families uh a lot of people were like i think the gene clark the uh kind of the main creative force behind the birds uh had like a really messed up uh kind of childhood and uh obviously the wilson brothers and graham parsons as well his dad i believe uh, uh committed suicide under somewhat strange circumstances and then his mother, who was from pretty wealthy old line, Dave McGowan goes kind of full, like almost bloodlines of the Illuminati a little bit onto some of the oh, yeah, lineage no, of these say, people. This is the gr- like another great paragraph of the book uh, where he says, uh, you know, uh, like uh, his life story, talking about Parsons, is nevertheless a fascinating one. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, even though he's not as famous as Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, etc., mm-hmm. uh, it's still a fascinating story, primarily because it contains all the classic Laurel Canyon elements. The royal bloodlines, the not-so-well-hidden intelligence connections, the occult overtones, the extravagantly wealthy family background, and an incinerated house or two, and, of course, a whole lot of curious deaths. We begin mm-hmm. back about a thousand years ago with Ferdinand the Great, the first king of Castile <laughs> on the Iberian Peninsula. It is to him that the wealthy Connor family claims their family lineage can be traced. Also in the family tree was King Edward II of England, son of Edward I and of Eleanor of Castile. According to some sources, Eddie II was murdered by having a red-hot iron shoved up his rectum, though most of his loyal subjects probably didn't shed many tears for the hated ruler. 
Bringing the royal bloodline to America was one Colonel George Reed, born in the UK in 1608 and married in Yorktown, Pennsylvania, sometime thereafter. Uh, yeah, so this, uh, you know, continues through World War II. Reed's mm-hmm. offspring would ultimately farm Ingram Cecil Connor Jr., the well-to-do gent who settled in Columbia, Tennessee. Like his father before him, Cecil attended Columbia Military Academy in May 1940 at the outset of World War II. He enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force as a second lieutenant. In March of 1941, Cecil, who during the war would become known as Coon Dog, though no one seems to remember why, was shipped off to Hawaii. Nine months later, Pearl Harbor came under attack by Japanese bombers. Not to worry, though, Cecil was never in harm's way, having opted to forego living in officers' quarters in the military base in favor of staying at a luxurious, massive estate near Diamond Head owned by the wealthy heiress Barbara Hutton. Hutton, for the record, was the granddaughter of Frank Woolworth, the founder of Woolworth's Five and Dime Store chain. She was also the daughter of Franklin Laws Hutton, co-founder of E.F. Hutton, one of the nation's most prestigious brokerage firms until it ran afoul of the law for such crimes as check-kiting, money-laundering, and mail fraud. Uh, yeah, so... Oh, oh Barbara was... CW Post Connection. Yep, uh, oh, back to yeah. your rancha, and I, niece, I think... yes. Who was a? It was like um, I think Jimi Mar- Hendrix also loved Urantia, um, and yes, Gary Garcia. He did. I think I did as well. He would and uh, yeah. the uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, was it like Marjorie Merriweather Post or something? Merriweather Post, who was the 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 builder and original owner of Mar a Lago. Hmm. Ah. Yeah. Even it's all <laughs> it's a small yeah, it's world. all connected yes um, yeah um, it's all connected yeah so um, yeah so so like that yeah. that's that's some deep um i guess um barbara was uh i think uh, graham's mother she was traumatized by he says like so many other characters who populated the story barbara was traumatized in childhood by the alleged suicide of a parent um, it was five-year-old Barbara who discovered her mother Edna's lifeless body in May 1917. An empty bottle of strychnine was reportedly recovered with police found a nearby bathroom. And uh, in 1930, just after the onset of the Great Depression, Barbara was thrown a lavish debutante ball attended by those at the very top of the food chain, including members of the Astor and Rockefeller families. The next year, she inherited a fortune estimated to be worth the equivalent of $1 billion today. She was just 19 at the time. Two years later, she received further inheritance that raised her net worth to an estimated two to two point five billion in today's money, and that was during the Great Depression. I guess she lived a very troubled life with numerous failed marriages and relationships, um, and uh, she one of her paranoids is a gentleman by the name of Philip Van Rensselaer who uh, later penned a book about her life, which he titled Million Dollar Baby, and Van Rensselaer. Uh, it will be recalled, was an ancestor of Laurel Canyon's own David Crosby, a.k.a. David Von Cortland, um, who, uh, yeah, we didn't mention yet, but was from, like, literally one of the oldest ruling families of, like, Dutch colonial New Amsterdam. Like, and I think one of his, you know, ancestors... Uh, it was like the Van Cortland and the Schuyler families were like these Dutch, you know, uh, families that had been mayors, have been governors, like Van Cortland uh, Park. Schuyler, is a, uh, as you may know from Hamilton, the Schuyler sisters. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, that's them. Big, that's them. Yes. Yeah. So they're they're <laughs> all uh, yeah. David Crosby is like a yeah. direct descendant. From all Weirdly those families, not like how many slaves they had in the musical. Uh, there's pictures of being like POC, but they're actually right, like of course. slave owners. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, anyway, uh, but, uh, so it's all close, yeah. but uh, but let's see. Um, and so he, 
Yeah, so the, it's crazy they that he were... brought it back to Ferdinand of Castile, like uh, you know, maybe some grand. Uh, yeah, talk about a little jihad waging across the ages. You know, it all goes back to the Reconquista. You know, uh, uh-huh. should have never happened. Anyway. Yeah, uh, but I, I uh, guess you, also yeah. They, so they were also um, part of the Snively family, uh, the Snively clan. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, his dad, Ingram Cecil Connor, uh, worked his way up to major in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Uh, after the war, he continued to serve at the Air Force at the base in Bartow, Florida, very near the Snively family home in Winter Haven. The Snively clan had first come to America circa 1700. Uh, according to historical records, Johann uh, Jacob Schnebel, uh, a Swiss Mennonite, was born in 1659. Uh, they came to America, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, let's see. Uh, in, uh, so this is interesting. Yeah, in 1724, Maria Schnebel uh, married the son of immigrants Hans Hershey and Anna Gunder. That son had Americanized his name, became known as Andrew Hershey. The Schnebel name was uh, likewise Americanized as Snavely or Snively. The Hershey and Snavely clans would continue to happily intermarry, ultimately producing, in 1857, Milton Snavely Hershey, and Milton S. Hershey, of course, would go on to found the world's largest producer of chocolate confections. I guess, you know, less known is that Hershey failed miserably in his first several attempts to launch a candy company. Uh, all of those ventures uh, in Philadelphia, Chicago, and New York City were financed with Snively family money. And uh, I guess he, yeah, you know, he, he built a, a huge... Built, bought 40,000 Lakers of undeveloped land and build uh, the world's largest chocolate facility and an entire company town. And um, I guess uh, one of those descendants was uh, also John Papa John Snively, who headed off to Florida in the early 1900s to seek his fortune. And by the 1950s, Snively Groves is one of the largest shippers of fresh fruit in the state of Florida. And uh, so Avis Snively um, exchanged vows with Ingram Cecil Connor in 1945. Uh, and she was the daughter of Papa John, the Citrus King. And so Coondog and Avis gave birth to the first <laughs> child and only son, Ingram Cecil Connor III, later known as Graham Parsons. Um, and uh, he was raised on basically like a citrus plantation um, in Waycross, Georgia. Uh, Very, uh, where Chinatown, kind of. Uh, yeah. Um with the citrus connections. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And yeah. thing, creepy things uh, like, I guess, uh, Kundog and Avis entertained frequently and were both well-known to be heavy drinkers. They were There were hushed rumors that they were swingers as well. As Graham's younger sister, known as Little Avis, would later recall, things were mighty strange around the house. Yikes. Uh, so then Graham Parsons gets sent when he's 11 to the Bowles School, a combination prep school and military academy in Jacksonville, Florida. While attending Bowles, he became a member of the Centurions, the school's version of an elite fraternity. And then, uh, but then when he was there, uh, just before Christmas 1958, Coondog was found sprawled across his bed in the family home, a bullet hole in his right temple, a 38 caliber handgun was found nearby. There was no note, uh, and uh, Kundog had said that he was happier than he'd ever been the month before. Curiously, his death was initially ruled to be accidental, but the cause of his death was later changed uh, to suicide. And uh, I guess Papa John Snively died right before that, uh, so his mom was all torn up, and 
And I guess she uh, she never appeared to grieve and displayed a total lack of remorse over anything she may have done to drive Coondog allegedly to commit suicide. By some reports, she'd been having an affair. Um, and uh, right af- not long after that death, um, Avis met Robert Ellis Parsons, who owned a business that ostensibly specialized in leasing heavy construction equipment. Parsons' clients, curiously enough, happened to be in Cuba, then under the brutal hand of Batista, and in various South American countries that were also under the thumb of U.S.-installed dictators. The Snively clan took an immediate dislike to Parsons, who was described by one family member as a, quote, greedy son of a bitch. Nevertheless, Avis quickly right. married him, and, and Bob Parsons quickly took control of her life. One of his first moves was to adopt Graham and Avis, even going so far as to have new birth certificates drawn up, listing them, listing him as their biological father. He convinced his wife to sue her siblings over the citrus groves and uh let's see oh yeah yeah here in 1960 just a year after marrying bob and avis added daughter day into the family um also added was 18 year old babysitter bonnie whom bob immediately became uh, began an affair with which apparently was not a very well-kept secret this is interesting what was a somewhat better kept secret is that in the early 1960s following the cuban revolution Robert Ellis Parsons became involved in what was referred to as the Cuban cause, which is to say he had a very he had very close ties to the leaders of an exile group that was being trained in Polk County, Florida to overthrow the Cuban government. On at least one occasion, he brought young Graham along to visit the group's training camp. As luck would have it, a team from Life magazine, there we go again, happened to also be there that day, and Graham was photographed at the camp. When Avis was informed of that development, she worked quickly to ensure that those photos were never published. To this day, they have never surfaced. And during that same era, so this is this is interesting, Bob Parsons converted a downtown warehouse that he owned into a teen nightclub to showcase the talents of his son, Ingram Graham Parsons, who sang and played keyboards and the guitar. Circa 1963, Graham got a folk combo together that was known as the Shilohs. During the summer of 64, the summer before Graham's senior year of high school, the band spent a month in New York. During that brief time, Parsons, as fate would have it, met and bonded with Brandon DeWild, Richie Ferret, and John Phillips, Papa John Phillips. He would meet up with all three again a couple years later in Laurel Canyon. Despite having expressed an early preference for Annapolis or West Point, Graham applied to Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Uh, And despite decidedly unimpressive grades and test scores, he was accepted by Harvard, purportedly due to an essay he submitted that he likely didn't actually write. During his last year of high school, Graham and the Shilohs booked an hour-long gig at the campus radio station at, of all places, Bob Jones University. At his high school graduation in June 65, Graham was in his cap and gown and all set to proceed with the ceremonies when he was pulled aside and informed that his mother Avis had suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. Seemingly unaffected by the news, he chose to participate in the ceremonies. A classmate and friend has said that there was no sign that anything was troubling Graham that day as he went through the graduation rituals. Uh, Avis had died in the hospital, reportedly of alcohol poisoning, right after Bob Parsons had smuggled her in a bottle of scotch. Graham's mother was just 42 at the time of her death. His father, Coondog, had only made it to the age of 41. Uh, neither of their kids, Graham or little Avis, would even make it that far. Soon after his mom died, Grant, Graham received a draft notice from the Selective Service. Not to worry, though. Bob quickly got him a 4F deferment, and Graham went off to Harvard. But after five months, February 66, he'd had enough of Harvard, and he withdrew. According to some sources, he never really attended school at all, um, but rather spent his time taking in the folk music scene in Cambridge and putting his own band together. So, I mean, that's, yeah. And then he eventually, like, went out in, uh... Yeah, 
Yeah, he was all Later convinced soon. the whole scene when he was in Harvard, you know, uh, and, uh, you know. Uh, Club 47, Club like we talked about. about. Yeah, Club 47, you know, yeah, we, the Boston Strangler stuff we touched on, yeah. So I guess, oh yeah, this is one little thing that, that jumped out at me. Uh, during, um, in, let's see, he started doing LSD in 66. Uh, so right around the time everybody else did. Uh, and he he moved to the Bronx in New York in early 66. He rented an 11-room party house where marijuana and LSD fro- flowed freely. Uh, one unofficial member of his band was child actor turned aspiring musician Brandon DeWild, known in the 1950s as the king of child actors. Uh, so I don't know, getting weird, kind of like there's a lot of, there are a lot of weird child actor people that pop up, uh, like Van Dyke Parks, uh, the Beach Boys. But here, here's a little odd. In November, December 66, nine months after leaving Harvard for New York, Graham ventured out to California. While there, he met a certain Nancy Ross, who at the time was living with David Crosby. In Ben Fong Torres's Hickory Wind, Ross provides some interesting biographical details. Quote, I grew up with David Crosby here in town. I was 13 when we met. David and I were part of the debutante set. My father was a captain in the Royal Air Force of England. I married Eleanor Roosevelt's grandson, Rex, at 16, 17. I was still married to Rex when I was with David. The marriage lasted a couple years. I got an apartment and started designing restaurants for Elmer Valentine at Whiskey A Go Go. Um, so, oh, yeah. At age 19, Ross went with Crosby, quote, up to his little bachelor apartment where I drew pentagrams on the wall. <laughs> um yeah uh, uh, let's see yeah, so then you know Graham Parsons like somehow just immediately meets David Crosby and then like ends up replacing him in the birds like not long after that and everyone's dra- drawing pentagrams on the walls and uh Graham Parsons bought a house in Laurel Canyon he he had the international submarine band but then uh disbanded it and unofficially joined the birds replacing the recently departed David Crosby. And he was only there. He's only in that band for four to five months, but they recorded Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which, uh, as I said, is pretty, pretty good uh, kind of L.A. country album. But then Richie Ferre, who had split off from Buffalo Springfield, almost uh, made a band with Parsons, but then they, they decided they were going in different directions. So Ferre put together Poco, which featured uh, as its original bassist Randy Meisner, who would then go on to become an Eagle, and then also Timothy B. Schmidt, who would later go on to become an Eagle. Uh, The Eagles just kept taking the Poco bassist, like all through the 70s. While Parsons assembled the Flying Burrito Brothers, which would later, after he got kicked out for drug use, uh, uh, would be joined by Bernie Leadon, who would also go on to become an eagle. So we're really in the pre-eagle. This is like the the ferment that the eagles kind of uh, sprung out of, the third being Linda Ronstadt, which comes a little bit later. Anyways...
basically, you know, he was in the Flying Burrito Brothers. They released, like, the Gilded Palace of Sin, really good album. I, I think both their albums uh, and Burrito Deluxe are really good. But they were, of course, playing with, they were one of the bands who had the dubious distinction of playing as one of the opening acts at the Rolling Stones' infamous free show at Altamont Speedway. Maybe we can talk about Altamont for, uh, go yeah. back to all, this Altamont thing for a second. Because Graham had become yeah, very close uh, to the Stones, particularly Keith Richards, and he would later be credited with being the inspiration for the country flavor evident on the Stones' Let It Bleed album. Uh, Parsons had first met up with the Stones when they were in Los Angeles in the summer of 68 to mix their Beggar's Banquet album. Also hooking up with Stones around that time was Phil Kaufman, who once boasted that he had slept with every one of the convicted murderesses in the Manson family. Kaufman initially cool. lived with Charlie. Yeah, yeah, this guy's so cool. Uh, Kaufman yeah. initially lived with Charlie and his girls after being released from prison in March of 1968, and he thereafter remained what Kaufman himself described as a, quote, sympathetic cousin to Manson. He also went to work as the Rolling Stones road manager for their 1969 American tour, uh, which is the type of job apparently best filled by ex-convict friends of Charlie Manson. And uh, let's see. Uh, da, yeah, da, da, da. this is uh, mm. this kind of reminded me of actually Nick Bryan, who wrote one of the uh, Franco Scandal books that we read. Uh, wrote like a foreword to this book, so I guess like uh, you know, the two authors uh had were friends. I think it's the same Nick Bryant. But, yeah, yeah um, no, it is. Yeah, he wrote the yeah, foreword to this uh, book. Yeah, this reminded me some like uh when he talks about like uh Manson's connections to the biker gangs. Uh, I was mm-hmm. I almost well, I actually did go look up and confirm that it wasn't the same one, but uh, you know, he writes that um on December uh. 6, 1969, temporary Laurel Canyon residents Mick and Keith, along with permanent Laurel Canyon residents Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, all gathered at a desolate speedway known as Altamont to stage a free concert. By the time was over, four people were dead, another five, 850 concertgoers were injured to varying degrees, mostly by members of the Hells Angels, swinging lighted pool cues. Pool cues, excuse mm-hmm. me. The Angels had, of course, been hired by the Stones to ostensibly provide security. That decision is almost universally cast as an innocent mistake on the part of the band, though such a claim is difficult to believe. It was certainly no secret that the reactionary motorcycle clubs formed by former military men were openly hostile to hippies and anti-war activists. As early as 1965, they had brutally attacked peaceful anti-war demonstrators while police, who had courteously allowed the angels to pass through their line, looked on. Wow. Uh, Seeing Mm -hmm. some resonances, uh, the police let them through. Uh, It was also known... (laughs) That the angels were heavily involved in trafficking meth, a drug that was widely blamed for the ugliness that descended over the hate. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like, uh, this is the part that kind of reminded me a little bit of the Franklin Scandal stuff with their mentions of the uh, the Sons of Silence, uh, you know, the biker gang that was, like, oh, selling yeah. LSD, allegedly, according to one of those FBI agents. Like, yes. trying to associate Alicia. Oh, yeah. Perhaps less well-known was uh, that more than a few of the biker gangs of the 1960s had uncomfortably close ties to Charlie Manson, particularly a club known as the Straight Satans, one of whose mm-hmm. members, Danny DiCarlo, served as the family's sergeant at arms, watching over Charlie's arsenal of weapons. DiCarlo also, by some reports, had close ties to the process. At mm-hmm. least one of the performers taking stage at Altamont, curiously enough, also had close ties to some of the outlaw biker gangs. As was revealed in his autobiography, Crosby had friends in every Bay Area chapter of the Hells Angels. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is like some interesting uh, stuff about like the film of the... Uh, the killings oh, yeah. at Altamont and like, uh-huh. uh, you know, he really goes in on the movie, give me shelter. Um, yeah. like, uh, he says, most accounts claim that Meredith Hunter 
was killed while the band performed under my thumb, but all such claims appear to be based on the mainstream snuff film, Gimme Shelter, <laughs> which the killing was deliberately presented out of sequence. In the absence of any alternative filmic versions of Hunter's death, the Maisie's Brothers film became the default official orthodoxy. Not well known as it's someone who went to great lengths to ensure that there would be only one available version of all events, of the events. Uh, as Rolling Stone reported shortly after the concert, one weird Altamont story has to do with a young Berkeley filmmaker who claims to have gotten 80mm footage of the killing. He got home from the affair Saturday and began telling his friends about his amazing film. His house was knocked over the next night, completely rifled. The thief took only his film, nothing else. Contrary mm. to the impression created by Gimme Shelter, Hunter was killed not long into the stone set. Uh, but as the film's editor, Charlotte Zerrin, uh, explained to Salon.com some 30 years later, yeah... The climax of the movie always has to come at the end. We're talking about the structure of a film. And what kind of concert film are you going to be able to have after somebody has been murdered in front of the stage? Hanging around for another hour would have been really wrong in terms of the film. Ah, wow. I did not (laughs) uh, not hear that before. Uh, Uh, What wasn't wrong, apparently, was deliberately altering the sequence of events in what was ostensibly a documentary film. Uh, this is a crazy uh, little uh, interlock here. Yep. One of the oh young boy. cameramen working for the Maisie's brothers that day, as it turns out, was a guy by the name of George Lucas. It is unclear <laughs> whether it was Lucas who captured the conveniently unobstructed footage of the murder. Not long after, Lucas would begin a meteoric rise at the very top of the Hollywood food chain. Uh, he would be joined mm-hmm. there by Steven Spielberg, who, yeah, worked at Lookout Mountain, um, you know, as a, well, as a did, film student. Did, he, he lived there. No, he uh, lived there. Yeah, I don't know. He, yeah, I don't know yeah, if he yeah. worked at Lookout Mountain. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, well, he at least lived there. Um, and you know. I think you should read the the, the, the last. I'll read the last part of this because you know, just to be honest with myself, uh, you know, basically he says, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, the two of them would emerge as arguably the most critically acclaimed influential filmmakers of the generation, just as the second wave, the second wave of Laurel Canyon bands with names like the Eagles and CSN would transform the music industry from a community of artists into a vast money-making machine, ushering in the area of stadium concerts, multi-million selling albums, and unprecedented profits. Spielberg and Lucas would perform a similar trick with the film business, producing blockbusters like E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, and Star Wars. It seems perfectly natural, then, that in the middle-late 60s, USC film student Spielberg was living on Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon. Um, that's pretty uh, uh, cool. Also, oh, we yeah, should talk about uh, Don McLean. Shots at the Eagles there. Uh, uh, a little bit of shots. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, okay, I, I would take a little bone with, like, <laughs> McGowan there, because, like, if his thesis of this book is true, like, when was it a community of artists? Like, when was the music industry not this shady thing controlled by like the mob and like the military intelligence complex, you know, it's like, did the Eagles really, I think the Eagles get flack for that, for having like expensive stadium concerts and making a ton of money and like turning it into a businessman, you know, like, uh, but like, weren't all these people, it was just a business the whole time, you know? Uh, Um, Well, you know, some people are just Eagles phobes, you know, they just uh, hate the Eagles and their Eagles phobia comes out, you know? Yeah, he, he mostly doesn't go after them, but uh, I, I I think uh, McGowan's probably not not a huge fan. Um, I could uh, see him on that yeah, Lebowski I mean, uh, false consciousness tip, you know, uh, that they suck or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, he talks. He has. Yeah, he uh, talks about American Pie. Yeah, Don McLean. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I he, thought this is a choice passage here. Th- this is where it gets kind of SK Bainey a little bit. <laughs> All right. 
So about one year after Altamont, otherwise obscure singer-songwriter Don McLean penned the words to what was destined to become one of the most iconic songs in the annals of popular music, American Pie. Those lyrics are essentially a chronological recitation of various tragedies that shaped the world of popular music. Not long after a reference to the August 1969 Manson murders and their connection to the Laurel Canyon music scene, and just before a reference to the October 1970 death of Janis Joplin, can be found the following verse in which McLean characterized the death of Hunter as a ritualized murder with Mick Jagger in the role of Satan. And he quotes here, uh, and there we are, there we were, all in one place, a generation lost in space with no time left to start again. So come on, Jack, be nimble. Jack, be quit. Jack Flash sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high in, into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. Yeah, I really never, like, uh, I mean, I've obviously heard that song probably, like, a hundred times in my life, like, just on the radio, like, you know, not like I, like, I'm sitting at home and I'm like, I'm gonna crank, uh, you know, The Day the Music Died, um, or American Pie, or yeah. whatever the title of that song is, but I never noticed that, uh, verse, um, it's an interesting reading of it, is it, uh, is it confirmed that that is like a reference oh, yeah. to Altamont? And, uh, yeah. Well, I, d- yeah, I don't know if it's sense. confirmed to be a reference to Altamont. It definitely seems to be a a reference to uh, Mick Jagger and Jumping Jack Flash. Uh, and yeah, also sure. like yes, uh, yes. Fire is the Devil's Only Friend. Um, and right, Sympathy yeah, for... I think like, the yeah, fact yeah. that Sympathy for the Devil was playing means that he's kind of uh yeah like kind of referencing them playing yes. this as somebody gets killed and also uh, you we're all in one place a generation lost in space and mcgowan says you know as was the custom with big events in the mid to late 60s particularly in northern california altamont was drenched in acid as was also the custom at the time the acid was provided free of charge by mr augustus owsley stanley the third yes at the so at, at the so-called human being staged in january of 1967 for example I think that Timothy Leary was at, Owsley had kindly distributed 10,000 tabs of potent LSD. For the Monterey Pop Festival just five months later, he had cooked up and distributed 14,000 tabs. For Altamont, he did likewise. Also present that day and featured in the Maisels Brothers film, gyrating atop a raised platform near the stage, was the king of the freaks himself, Vito Palaikis. <laughs> so, like, they're yeah. all... All these sus lords are just like... Uh, ugh, it just it gives you the yeah, willies thinking talked- about... Yeah, we've talked about Asley in the past, but there's some great stuff like earlier uh, in the book where, you know, uh, it talks about how he would just be giving away like all this like super high quality, inexpensive, like, you know, LSD, like pretty much like for free, like or like at least not uh-huh. at a profit. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, he quotes some other authors, Martin Lee and Bruce Schlain, saying that Asley cultivated an image of a wizard alchemist whose intentions with LSD were priestly and magical Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, of course he has, like, a massive, like, uh, military background in his family, um, and, uh, Yeah, we had gone that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and actually, but, uh, McGowan yeah, fills very... in a, McGowan fills in a blank that I think we didn't flesh out in the Grateful Dead episode about his time being institutionalized. Uh, he says here mm-hmm. that, uh, I guess he, he got tossed out of the Charlotte Hall Military Academy in Maryland, 
um, for being intoxicated. And not long after that, at the tender age of 15, Owsley voluntarily committed himself to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in D.C. St. Elizabeth's, it should be noted, had a far more sinister name upon its founding in 1855, the Government Hospital for the Insane. He remained there, uh, confined there for treatment for the next 15 months. During that time, his mother uh, passed away. And... Uh, yeah, so like that, fifteen months is quite a long time. Uh, yeah. And uh, what did he also? Um, he also had a connection with a guy that I I definitely want to jump into more one day. Who actually I drove by his compound when I was recently up in the Bay Area because it's not, um, it, it's in the East Bay, like not super far from uh, where I grew up, and that's Doctor Alexander Shulgin. And Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, yeah, basically, uh, he, he's the one who gave Owsley the recipe for that drug STP that we've mentioned before. That was like a kind of psychedelic speed. Yeah. And it was like a, uh, according to McGowan, it was like a bio warfare agent, uh, that Uh was like, you know, yeah. being given. It's a free, it's like, yeah, it's like a freak out drug. Uh, and Um, you know, basically, uh, it says that in 1967, Owsley unleashed on the hate, a particularly nasty hallucinogen known as STP developed by the friendly folks at Dow chemical. STP had been tested extensively at Frank Zappa's former home, the Edgewood arsenal as a possible bio warfare agent before being distributed to hippies as a recreational drug Owsley reportedly obtained the recipe from alexander shulgin a former harvard man who developed a keen interest in psychopharmacology while serving in the u.s navy shulgin worked for many years as a senior research chemist at dow and later worked very closely with the dea now shulgin shulgin was kind of famous he died like within the last 10 years but he was very famous for creating like research chemical analog drugs of things that are kind of related he was a big uh popularizer of mdma in the 1980s and things like 2cb 2ci 2ct7 there's a whole like galaxy of them that were in this ambiguous area of like kind of being illegal but like maybe being unscheduled but being kind of similar and a lot of these drugs first kind of uh, were distributed at Burning Man in like the 90s and the 2000s as a kind of almost in a kind of like laboratory setting kind of way. Uh, he would roll out all these things and he did have a, a spooky relationship with the DEA. I think he also referenced before that he was a member of Bohemian Grove. So hmm. there's that. Yeah. Uh, but but kind of very, um, very big in like the Terrence McKenna kind of entheogen shamanic new agey kind of world like mm-hmm. alexander shogun was like a hero um and uh yeah. yeah so cool you know working at dow chemical um yeah, yeah. very very cool um but anyways yes. and yeah his uh his compound um still has his like name etched on it on this like very precarious like private road like kind of off a main street that's like on a total hill that's like isolated and that's where his drug lab was and uh you know kind of pretty out in the open didn't really ever he seemed to have some arrangement with the dea to like not get busted doing whatever he was doing his entire life so something like that was what uh you know owsley bear mr augustus owsley stanley the third which is just like my god like (laughs) it was just like you know, yeah. peddling at Altamont. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and George yeah. Lucas just psh, went to the moon after that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that, it's mm-hmm. so bizarre that he was the filmmaker there. And then 
And then Kenneth Anger was so tight with all the Hell's Angels and wanted Mick Jagger to star in one of his movies. I mean, he like lived in their house for a while. You know, this is like peak when the Rolling Stones were hanging out with Kenneth Anger and Kenneth Anger was connected to the Laurel Canyon scene, even though he didn't technically live there. Yeah. But Graham Parsons had this very uh, mysterious, uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about his like collaboration with Emmylou Harris and McGowan, you know, goes into Emmylou Harris or, you know, mentions again, Emmylou Harris's like, uh, you know, uh, intelligence or, you know, her military, uh, family, you know, that she mm-hmm. grew up on military bases in Virginia. Uh, I don't know, like, uh, how significant, uh, but you know, maybe, uh, it's from the uh, same area. Where, um, yeah, the yeah. Harry Diamond Laboratories where there yeah. was like weird short time span control of human behavior, technology yeah. being tested. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, Parsons, I think the death of Parsons kind of jumps out as, uh, as something yeah. that is very bizarre and it ties in with, I guess, his, uh, obsession with UFOs. Yes. He would go to Joshua tree and take the psych, uh, who was in a and, uh, search for UFOs. That was like his favorite one of his favorite activities, you know, uh, McGowan writes, sometimes he would take friends with him, such as Keith Richards, um, Mm -hmm. to help look for the UFOs. Um, and you know, then in September of 1973, he was accompanied to Joshua tree by his personal assistant, Michael Martin, Martin's girlfriend, Dale McElroy and Parsons, former high school sweetheart, Margaret Fitcher. As the story goes, the group soon ran out of pot and quickly dispatched Martin back to LA to pick up a fresh supply. He was, therefore, officially not there at the time of Graham's death, though why he hadn't returned has never been explained, especially given that his job was specifically to keep an eye on Graham and monitor his drug intake. Uh, So how Graham Parsons died is anyone's guess. There are as many versions of the event as there are witnesses to it. Actually, that's not quite true. There are more versions than there are witnesses, because some of those witnesses have told more than one story. Officially, Parsons died of an overdose, but forensics testing revealed no morphine or barbiturates in his blood. Morphine showed up in his liver and urine, but as experts have noted, those toxicology results indicate chronic but not recent use. Police seem to have had little interest in getting at the truth and made no apparent effort to reconcile the various conflicting accounts. Details of the incident, such as how long Graham had been left alone, whether he was still alive when discovered, who made the discovery, etc., were wildly inconsistent in the accounts of Fisher, McElroy, and Frank and Alan Barbary, the inn's owner and his son. The mm-hmm. Barbary's accounts conflicted both with each other and the girls' accounts. So yeah, uh, and then and then uh, like and then Phil Kaufman shows up within yeah, like two hours of the police is, station. Uh, the ritualistic uh, cremation uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Right. Um, yeah. Um, oh, there's another thing that like was from a little bit earlier that his uh, death, you know, of a of a of a heart attack, I guess, or you know, of just like spontaneous of an overdose, uh, mm-hmm. happened like just uh, before Jim Croce. Uh, yeah, you know, day died. before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just like got completely buried uh, by that happening. But yeah. So then there was the whole like bizarre thing with uh, Phil Kaufman. Um, so yeah, he appeared on the scene within two hours uh at the hospital uh Mm -hmm. to pick up fisher and mcelroy bypassing the police and the hospital coffin went directly to the inn which the girls had returned to and quickly hustled them straight back to la police never spoke to either of the women again despite the conflicting accounts and the open question of what exactly it was that killed graham Mm -hmm. on the autumnal equinox of 1973 (laughs) coffin and martin driving a dilapidated hearse 
provided by McElroy, arrived at LAX to claim the body of Graham Parsons. If the story is to be believed, then nobody, including the police officer who was nearby, found it at all unusual that two drunken, disheveled men in an obviously out-of-service hearse and had no license plates and several broken windows had arrived without any paperwork to claim the body of a deceased celebrity. In fact, according to Kaufman's dubious account, the cop even helped the pair load the casket into the hearse and then looked the other way when Martin slammed the hearse into a wall on the way out of the hangar. Kaufman and Martin then drove the body back to the Joshua Tree, doused it with gasoline, and set it ablaze. Local police mm-hmm. initially speculated that the cremation was ritualistic, which indeed it was, but such reports were, and continued to be, scoffed at. Um, Yikes. Word. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just like, like what so, do you even... And that's like, that is kind of the official story. It's like, yep, he did this, and nobody knows why, and like, nothing to see here. Uh, he just stole Grandpa's yeah. body and cremated it uh, on the autumnal equinox. <laughs> and I yeah, mean, even just to really... destroy evidence, like, that is very sus. Like, you probably should have arrested him. I think they did get arrested, yeah, well, but they got a slap on really the wrist, funny. basically. They tried, well, actually, this is, like, kind of really near the end of his chapter about Parsons, and there's a very uh, funny little coda where he says, uh, on September 26th, LAPD detectives, led by anchorman Larry Burrell, came knocking on Kaufman's door with warrants to serve. Bizarrely enough, director Arthur Penn was there with a full crew shooting scenes for the film Night Moves with star Gene Hackman. Oh my when you God. are a friend of Charlie Manson's, it would appear everyone in Hollywood wants to hang out with you. While the crew continued working, Coffin was taken in by police, but was back just a few hours later. In the end, he and Martin were fined 300 each, plus reimbursement for the cost of the coffin. Um, wow. So, yeah. Wow. You know, then... Uh, I watched that recently. It's kind of a weird plot about like a, yeah. a a teenage girl being like kind of preyed upon by like an older man and like her dad coming right. to yeah, like I rescue her. Yeah, uh, it's a very yeah very strange movie. Yeah, uh, it is. That yeah, is very weird though. But things. yeah, just yeah. one of those things. Uh, Here on stage, the mamas and papas. These youngsters discovered a combination that blends rock and roll ballad and folk singing. So here are the mamas and the papas. Let's have a fine dance.
we'll start to wrap up. The last person I think we didn't like quite get to was Papa John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas, who had really uh, played a big role in like this whole Laurel Canyon thing. It was one of the first bands, like the Mamas and the Papas, like really burst out of the gate in like 1966 with like Monday Monday, California Dreamin', uh, and 12:30. Like the young girls are coming to the canyon, which definitely has a creepier vibe when you start to read about. Papa John Phillips's uh, background and the things he was alleged to do uh, to both his, I think, uh, his wife, Michelle Phillips, who's in the band, and his daughter, Mackenzie Phillips. The thing is, uh, his dad, Claude Phillips, was like a career military officer and uh, who spent a lot of time in the Caribbean. He was commi- He was in Haiti in the 1920s and uh, spent some time in Nicaragua and then moved to Alexandria, Virginia, where John Phillips uh, grew up and went to school. Uh, He went to a bunch of strict Catholic and military schools, served as an altar boy, by his own admission, had a darker side, which included forays into vandalism, auto theft, breaking and entering, fighting, and other sort of mischief. Uh, His mother, meanwhile, routinely cruised for men when not spending time with a U.S. Army colonel named George Lacey. Uh, John would later be told that his real father was a U.S. Marine Corps doctor named Roland Meeks who died in a Japanese POW camp during World War II. Phillips uh, scored an appointment to the Annapolis Naval Academy, but dropped out. One of his first paying jobs was working on a fishing charter boat. As John later recalled it, the crew consisted of him, a retired Navy officer, and four retired Army generals. Seems like a perfect hit fit for one of the guiding future lights of the future guiding lights of the hippie movement. Um, as noted at the beginning uh, of the book, John's first wife was the aristocratic Susie Adams, a direct descendant of President John Adams and an occasional practitioner of voodoo. The couple's first son, Jeffrey, was born on Friday the 13th in December of 57. Shortly after that, John fell and found himself in, of all places, Havana, Cuba, just as the Batista regime was about to fall to the revolutionary forces of Fidel Castro. According to Phillips, he and his traveling companions, quote, were once whisked off the street by a director straight into a TV studio to appear on a live Havana variety show. Many of you, I'm sure, have had a similar experience. Um, so he was just, like, poking around Cuba in, like, 1958 and 59 for no particular reason. That's pretty cool. And um, his future wife has a strange connection here. Uh, Michelle Phillips, who was born in Long Beach in 1944. Um, and uh, he, she sounds like she had a pretty abusive, fucked-up dad, uh, Gardner Gil- Gilliam, Um and after his, her mother died of a brain aneurysm when Michelle was five, uh, Gil uh, took his daughters and went to Mexico ostensibly to attend college on the GI Bill. They returned to Southern California a few years later, and Gil found work as an L.A. County probation officer. According to John, Gil's work, quote, often required him to go out of town, um, though one would think that that would make it rather difficult for him to keep tabs of his charges. Um, I don't know what's up with that, but this is very bizarre. In 1958, while future husband John was vacationing in war-torn Cuba, Michelle found a new mother figure in 23-year-old Tamar Hodel. Tamar's father, Dr. George Hodel, was described by Vanity Fair in December 2007 as, quote, the most pathologically decadent man in Los Angeles and the city's venereal disease czar and fixture in its A-list demi-monde. Also uh, also noted in the article was, quote, George Hodel shared with Man Ray 
a love for the work of the Marquis de Sade and the belief that the pursuit of personal liberty was worth everything. In other words, uh, Hodel embraced yeah. that all-purpose Luciferian creed, do what thou wilt. According to the same... Uh, now, this is funny because I used to live not very far from Dr. Hodel's house, which like is very iconic if you drive down uh, Franklin uh, in like East Hollywood going into Los Feliz. It was being remodeled a few years ago, but... Um, but anyways, uh, according to this article in, uh, in Vanity Fair, Tamar and her siblings had, quote, grown up in her father's Hollywood house, which resembled a Mayan temple and was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's son and was the site of wild parties in which Hodel was sometimes joined by director John Huston, Chinatown, uh, and photographer Man Ray. The luxurious home reportedly features, among other amenities, a subterranean walk-in vault, which is always a nice thing to have around, within the walls of that singularly odd Hollywood Hills home which lies about three miles due east of the mouth of Floral Canyon. Tamar has talked of how she, quote, uh, uh, trigger warning right here. This is pretty, pretty fucked up. Um, she often uncomfortably posed nude for dirty old man, Man Ray, and once wriggled free from a predatory John Huston. Her own father, not so shockingly, quote, had committed incest with her and uh, plied her with erotic books, grooming her for what he touted as their transcendent union and frequently freely shared her with his wealthy and influential friends. Um, and uh, there's a lot more uh, offer uh, horrible stuff. Uh, he was actually arrested in like a huge sensational trial in 1949. I think he was charged with incest with his daughter and uh, charged with, among other things, offering his young daughter to several friends at an orgy. The sensational 1949 trial featured a witness who took the stand to describe being hypnotized by Hodel at a party. Uh, allegations that the rich and powerful were dabbling in incest, hypnotism, pedophilic orgies, and Luciferian philosophies must surely have been shocking to Angelinos in the 1940s, as they would still be to most Americans today. Eh, maybe a little less so. Uh, not, yeah. not for our listeners. Um, perhaps that is why the jury chose not to believe Tamar and instead acquitted Dr. Hodel. Of course, it should probably be factored in that Tamar was valiantly rilified by both the uh, Jerry Geisler-led defense team and the local press. Um, and this is something maybe people have heard this name before from this. Far more shocking, the allegations aired at trial was then and in fact that even while Hoda was standing trial on the sensational charges, he was and is still today the prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder case. There, uh, there have been numerous suspects identified, including Orson Welles. I didn't know that. But George Hodel does seem to be a much more likely suspect than most of those who have been identified. And his possible guilt, it should be noted, does not exclude others from very likely complicity as well. The mistake that virtually all investigators of this case have made is assuming that there was only one culprit. It is entirely possible that Hodel committed the crime in conjunction with various others in his Luciferian social circle. Photographer Man Ray, for example, is a compelling suspect given that the posing of Miss Short's body appeared to mimic the Minotaur, one of his better known photographs. So, like, the daughter of Dr. Hodel took teenage Michelle Williams under her wing, uh, bought her clothes, enrolled her in modeling school, taught her to drive, got her a fake ID and a steady stream of prescription drugs, One obtained, obtained one presumed from her father. Um, and she, uh, Michelle weirdly said uh, uh, that, quote, Tamar put on perfect airs around my dad, and when it became necessary, she would sleep with him. And... Uh, yeah, so that was, like, Michelle Phillips' like upbringing, and then she eventually met John Phillips when he moved to L.A. around, I think it was uh, 1965, and 
they were only around for like three years. They kind of fell apart, and really only their first album, if you can believe your eyes and ears, from early 1966, that was a chart topper, but they really weren't able to replicate it, and there was a uh, there was a weird milieu of like or there was like a weird adventure they went on where like I think John Phillips bought a yacht and they like sailed around the Caribbean uh, doing a lot of acid and uh, writing these songs that became the songs on their first album and uh, McGowan does point out that's kind of interesting that like they were completely like cut off from whatever was like starting to happen in Laurel Canyon at the time, but then they just come back with like this perfect Laurel Canyon album. And it's like, well, how did you guys get influenced by something that you were not uh, aware of at all? Um, So there's, you know, there's some weirdness there. Uh, And also, you know, uh, Papa John Phillips, like he did a lot of things to like popularize like the sixties and like kick them off. The two biggest things were writing the uh, San, like if you're going to San Francisco, uh, be sure to put flowers in your hair song, which became a huge radio hit and was like broadcast uh, upon all like the new FM radio stations in 67 and was credited with kind of like triggering that that deluge we talked about before of just like people descending from all around the country to go to the hate Ashbury. So like he kind of wrote the anthem for that. He also organized the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, which had like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, the Birds. Um, basically all the same people from both the San Francisco scene and the Laurel Canyon scene and kind of, you know, famously like got a lot of press coverage and like introduced this new countercultural California music vibe um, basically to the entire country. So like John Phillips was in there really in, uh, in the middle of it. And, you know, they, their marriage had like a, problems obviously mama cass and peter doherty were the other two members um and mama cass was uh friends with uh abigail folger charles manson met her at mama cass's house she also died in a kind of like weird uh circumstance um and let's see what else uh let's see this is actually uh, weird Kenzie um phillips the i guess yes. the granddaughter was she was an american graffiti right uh on yes the george lucas connection yeah i remember yeah. her as someone who was like yeah um like she struggled with addiction or you know had a uh, sort of acting career as someone who's very young um, yeah yeah and there's uh, a creepy anecdote that that mcgowan puts in here that during the filming of graffiti in 1972 john phillips who i'm sure had lots of important business to attend to and therefore little time to look after his daughter signed over legal guardianship of mckenzie to producer gary kurtz who who all went on to be a, a star wars producer but that that's right. not a good sign for what comes after that also noting that that phillips circle of friends uh at in the late late 60s early 70s uh after the mamas and the papas broke up included uh who else j paul getty jr bobby kennedy jr who today is the great kind of vaccine warrior uh and princess margaret uh and it said getty and kennedy both plagued by demons of their own were likely being supplied drugs by phillips uh and another name in phillips rolodex was colin Tennant, the wealthy heir of a massive petrochemical conglomerate in the uk Tennant owned a private island in the british west indies where wealthy friends like john phillips and mick and bianca jagger could engage in unknown activities in complete uh, seclusion 
Yeah, that. Um, all yeah, John. Uh, this is also another kind of odd little thing. Is he got he got into scoring movies, um, and in 1975 he sobered up enough to put together the soundtrack for the film The Man Who Fell to Earth, a surreal venture featuring the talents of fledgling actor David Bowie and director Nicholas Rogue, who had previously collaborated with Crowleyite Donald Camel on Performance, uh, which starred Mick Jagger. Right. Um, Let's see, uh, but back to Mackenzie Phillips, because she uh, released a memoir after struggling with addiction a lot you know, throughout her life. She released a memoir in 2009 called High on Arrival, which painted a disturbing picture of her late father. Another uh, content warning, pretty bad, bad news here. In addition, in addition to introducing her to drugs at the age of 11 by injecting her with cocaine, Mackenzie claimed that Papa John had raped her on the eve of her first marriage and engaged in an incestuous affair with her that spanned a decade and ended only when she became pregnant and did not know who the father was, uh, a scenario which should be noted with remarkable parallels to the ordeal endured by Michelle's surrogate mother, Tamar Hodel. Yeah, so that that's out there, that basically she's accused John Phillips of like this horrible thing, they have this weird connection to the Hodel family, and you know, also like some people might know that like Bijou Phillips... The actors and model was, uh, I think, was she the younger child of John Phillips? Yeah, she was. Came a little later and became a very, like, you know, uh, described by Index Magazine as a, quote, wild child who through fate and circumstance was somehow allowed to partake of New York's nebulous nightlife at an age traditionally more suited to playing with dolls. Bijou was a cover model from a very young age. She was also the 14-year-old star of a Calvin Klein ad campaign that many people, as well as the U.S. Justice Department, considered to be bordering on child pornography, and that Bijou herself has referred to as, quote, the kitty porn ads. Uh, and there's one interesting anecdote here. Uh, Bijou told her interviewer from Index that coaching her and creepily lurking behind the scenes of that notorious Calvin Klein photo shoot, I'm guessing as a technical advisor, quote, was this porn guy. The interviewer identified that porn guy as Ron Jeremy, who is not your run-of-the-mill porn guy, and not just because he's arguably the world's most famous porn star. He is also a very well-connected porn star. His mother, for example, was an asset of the OSS, precursor of the CIA. His uncle had ties to notorious gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and he attended high school with none other than future CIA director George Tenet. And uh, obviously, the idea of Ron, I think he's indicted now for being a... Uh, uh, for rape or sexual assault, Ron Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Right. But actually, yeah. you know what? I I saw Ron Jeremy is one of those weird LA cele- celebrities that I've seen probably like four times in my years living here at just random time. Like, and the one time I definitely kind of saw him was I happened to be at the Rainbow Room, which is like still kind of like the it, it's like the the Hard Rock like Sunset Strip restaurant that you know like metalhead people like still go to and i saw him there years ago and it that's on the sunset strip just down the street from the mouth of uh, laurel canyon so <sighs> yeah so uh, the mamas and the papas uh it, very sus also their all their music was done by the wrecking crew which is why it sounds so good they're basically just singers um so uh, uh yeah. Once again, I guess, like, shout out to the Wrecking Crew for actually making all this music. But, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think we can... Uh, there are others as well, but I think um, yeah, we'll definitely come back to this milieu and these people and, like, yeah, the scene. Yeah, one thing we didn't get to, for sure, is that there's, like, a whole chapter, like, about Houdini, uh, yeah. which is kind of weird, like, you know, not really related to any of this stuff, but... Um, he was know, a Laurel Canyon uh, resident. 
Right, well, there's, like, a Houdini house in Laurel Canyon that, like, it's unclear if he ever actually lived in, but I kind of want to do, uh, you know, a Houdini episode in addition to an Elvis episode, uh, but, yeah. For sure. A, that's, like, kind of a weird, uh, as there are many digressions in the book in general, that's, like, a weird digression in the book, but, uh, yeah, that's, there's interesting material there, and I'm sure there's interesting stuff about Houdini in general and the connection with spiritualism and everything, uh, you know, Sir Arthur Conan yeah. Doyle comes up in there. Uh, I would like to do an episode about like the whole fairy uh, hoax that he was involved in. Uh, oh, I wasn't aware of the fairy episode. hoax. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a well, we can uh, discuss that at a, at a later date. But yeah, it's uh, quite a story. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, there there's uh, some really interesting. There's also like the Magic Castle. I think his name was John Mulholland. Um, I can't remember if he was related to like the Mulholland. Uh, the early tycoon of LA, but he was a very famous musician, uh, magician in like the forties and fifties who worked for the CIA, teaching them like deception and sleight of hand and things like that. So there's always been like a weird connection between like the magicians in like Hollywood and in that part yeah. of Hollywood and uh, going back to probably like the twenties and then obsession with various cults, like theosophy was big. The OTO was big. Um, it's always been, and, and in some of the earliest, like, you know, basically residents of Laurel Canyon were into a lot of that stuff as well. Right. Yeah. The magic castle is interesting. Yeah. There's a, uh, of course the, uh, you know, obviously they're all into the, a lot of them were into the occult, but, uh, the connection between like stage magic and like actual like ceremonial magic is super interesting. Yeah. There's that crazy movie. That's sort of like a paranormal thriller set at the uh, magic castle type thing. I want to say Scott Bakula is in it. Uh, really? but yeah, uh, I, I think so. I might, uh, Scott Bakula, magician movie, Lord of Illusions. Yes. Mm, uh, interesting. Yeah. but, uh, yeah. Yeah. There, uh, there's also based on Clive Barker and a short story. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway. There's also a, co- uh, there's a chapter near the end about punk and new wave, which I think is, uh, yeah. it, it, it's really interesting and it's worth, it's almost breaking off worth breaking off into like a different, uh, episode entirely. But I think it is kind of connected cause it all centers around miles Copeland, the famous like CIA Arabist, in, you know, intelligence, uh, officer who was okay. res- involved in multiple coups in like Syria and Egypt and Iran and all around the middle East and his sons, be, all became like big music industry impresarios in the 80s and like one of them mm-hmm. uh one of them was the manager of the police another one was the drummer of the police they founded like fbi and like irs records i think were the names of their companies and uh, they were really cool. big with like the, the they were big in like the british kind of new wave in punk and like sting and uh, all that kind of jazz and uh they're um very incredibly kind of sus. Uh, but I think what you might be seeing is like a continuation of the, uh, the op, so to speak, uh, from this sixties yeah. time into the like punk in general. Yeah. The sussness of punk in general is great. I've been following lately the saga of like the dead Kennedys on, uh, Oh Twitter. yeah. Like I guess yeah. they have like some account where they're like constantly like clamoring for, like the police to do something or like you know like uh well, people say that, know, that that yeah. that account is controlled by east bay ray now um mm-hmm. a, a true shame to like it shames me that he has that appellation of east bay 
Um, but maybe it's appropriate. But I guess, you know, people were saying Jello Biafra, kind of like Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia. Like, but Jello Biafra would never say that. And I don't know what Jello Biafra, I feel like Jello Biafra is kind of like in the, if anything, he'd be in like the free Julian Assange, like vote Green Party or something like that. Um, I don't, I don't know what Jello Biafra's like takes are these days. But yeah, uh, yeah but it is nonetheless funny to see like, Oh, yet another punk hero. Like they've really been dropping like flies. The Dead Kennedys would hang on the longest because, you know, they were an actual somewhat left wing, uh, though eh, you could definitely detect a little bit of like anti uh, communist bias, I think. Um, And even a kind of like edgy, like new right kind of, you know, almost like alt right a little. I mean, like their song, you know, ripping on a. uh, holiday in, I'm thinking of a holiday in Cambodia and uh, California Uber Alice, uh, which, you know, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They, they pegged Jerry Brown as like a as somebody posing as a hippie who's actually a fascist because mm-hmm. that's kind of not untrue. Um, yes, like uh, McGowan uh, yeah. McGowan even points out that Jerry Brown was also. Oh, uh, yeah. Lest we forget. Jerry Brown was like in this whole scene, too. He dated Linda Ronstadt yeah. in the 70s. He had a house, I think, in Laurel Canyon. So like he spent a lot of time down there. And um, and actually a little note in there that I had forgotten about was that his father, Pat Brown, who was like the very influential governor um, of California, Jerry's dad, um, was originally a Republican who then just decided that, like, he couldn't get elected governor as a Republican, I think during maybe, like, the Great Depression or the post-war era. So he just, like, switched up to being a Democrat. So it's a lot like how the Gettys were, like, always Republican, but then they were like, oh, yeah, let's just, like, support liberals because that's what, like, as long as somebody has a D next to their name, like, uh, that's good enough, you know? Um, Yeah. And also that, uh, yeah, that basically, I forget what it was, that... uh, uh, something about Ronald Reagan as well. I, I forgot what the thing was with Ronald Reagan. He kind of made a joke about, oh, yeah, he made uh, uh, McGowan kind of made a joke that like Reagan and Brown just like switched parties, uh, but they kind of represent the same like uh, spooky, fascistic uh, kind of, you know, uh, impulse, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, yeah, oh, oh, I know what it was. It was that like the lieutenant governor under Jerry Brown was a Republican. And so while Jerry Brown was running around like partying with like the Eagles and like Linda Ronstadt and like hanging out in Laurel Canyon, uh, the kind of right wing lieutenant governor was like implementing a bunch of like fashy, like kind of right wing programs and like law and order kind of stuff like that. That would have been more the flavor of like Ed Meese and Ronald Reagan. So basically, even though you had this like Governor Moonbeam, uh, super liberal, uh, kind of almost hippie-ish governor like running around in public uh the machinery of the state was still being very much influenced by like the ultra right kind of reagan type people which has always been like the thing with uh with california and uh yeah and laurel canyon i mean uh we'll we'll get into it at a later date but the fact that like uh patty davis reagan's daughter was living with Bernie Leadon, who was in the Flying Burrito Brothers and the Eagles, and actually played a part in kind of him getting kicked out of the Eagles because she wanted to get, she wanted to like co-write songs with him. And he, for like, 
Bernie Leadon forced the Eagles to like put one of their co-written songs on their album, and it's like probably one of their worst songs, like you know, kind of thing. I guess she was like technically a hippie and kind of like didn't vibe with her dad's politics, but still, it shows you the proximity of these worlds, like between the governor's mansion and like this weird drugged out hippie rock scene, which you wouldn't expect, uh, but shows you just how plugged in it was. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And yeah, the op definitely continues. It definitely rages on. Yeah. It, it echoes um, in the canyons of our minds uh, to this day. Yes. Word. Cool. Okay, uh, well, yeah. I think we can uh How wrap. long are we at at this point? Uh, 3.45. Yeah. I'll probably, I'll split this uh, in yeah, that's, uh Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty, that's, that's intense. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's possibly breaking our, is that breaking our record? Uh, I, I think uh, I think our last I think our last Q and A was a few minutes longer. All right. Well, I guess yeah. yeah the more we talk, uh, the more we'll uh, push towards that. But uh, we won't force it anyway. Yeah, we won't um, force it. Anyways, yeah. uh, plus this will be like, in two parts. So yeah, it will be in two parts. It doesn't really count. It'll be short. It'll be nice and digestible. Uh, so yeah, sorry yeah. for killing. Sorry for killing all of your idols, uh, yeah. all music as a side. I actually was kind of, yeah, I guess, like, uh, Joni Mitchell wasn't directly connected with any, like, sus things, it seemed. I mean, the, the, the main thing that stuck out to me was her quote about how some guy who had a parrot named Captain Blood was always coming into her house to write, like, arcane sigils on her walls and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I was hoping to see some kind of, like, thing that sort of explained her, like, later experiences with Morgellons, but... Uh, yeah. there wasn't really too much about her, but yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised with some of the three dog night stuff. I wasn't necessarily expecting that, uh, but maybe I should have been, uh, I didn't know, yeah, yeah, Danny uh, Hutton, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny Hutton who had a, a den of debauchery, uh, with a, yeah, a bedroom with, like, a, with black all, all walls. black walls. Yeah. Uh, word. yeah. Uh, and John Lennon, John Lennon, uh, was a frequent guest and friend, um, who, yeah, uh, did hang out in Laurel Canyon in the 70s. We'll get, we'll do a sequel episode that, I mean, maybe we'll fold it in with the Eagles episode because the Eagles are like, you know, the the number one thing to come out in the 70s. But it's like, it all comes out of the lineage of this weird Laurel Canyon thing and kind of like David Geffen guiding it to become this massive uh, phenomenon in the seventies. But I think the difference is a lot of the people in the seventies were actually like talented musicians and songwriters and they don't mm -hmm. feel in the same way. Like Joni Mitchell is kind of incontrovertibly like very talented and incredible. Like I don't yes. think anybody, nobody like put Joni Mitchell up to be able to like play a dulcimer and like, you know, uh, do all kinds of like really complicated like harmonic arrangements and shit and you know what i mean and the eagles the same thing like they were more like the wrecking crew than they were like the birds they were like the tour band mm. so they had to be good at playing live and they also happened to be songwriters who you know i mean we'll we'll dig deeper into that and linda ronstadt fantastic singer uh never made any pretensions to be a songwriter or like a you know, a musician per se, but was like a fantastic singer. So like the people in the seventies, like have more of a claim to being like actually good, but they almost get shat on like people. Nobody talks about Linda Ronstadt anymore, but like Linda Ronstadt mm, had a lot more talent than like a lot of these clowns in the sixties who get, mm -hmm. uh, who get lionized as being like the part of a part of something big. Like they, you know, changed yeah. the culture. I mean, they did change the culture, but maybe not in, 
the nice way that their fans like to think of that. Um, though I will say yes. one time that uh, David Crosby replied to a tweet of mine uh, talking about the JFK assassination, <laughs> and he does think that uh, JFK was killed by the CIA. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. If you uh, name he knows search me, that JFK was killed by the CIA. Uh, yeah, you know, that's the only comment that I've ever gotten. Terms. That's my only communication yeah. with any of these people. Uh, David Crosby did tell me on Twitter that uh, he thinks that they did that. Uh, but well, uh, I think that we can take that as a, an expert opinion. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, he would be one to know. <laughs> yeah, David Van uh, Cortland. Word. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, don't trust. Uh, don't trust countercultural music. It's an op. Yeah. Just yeah, fire uh, Satan's only friends. Um, yeah, etc. I mean, listen to it, know. but ju- or just in your mind. I was doing this today. Just imagine in your head, you're just listening to like there was one band in LA in the in the '60s called the Wrecking Crew that had a bunch of guest <laughs> singers who were psyops. But like the music underneath it is just some really talented people. So I think you can still enjoy <laughs> the Wrecking Crew's. Uh, cultural contributions and in that sense they have a lot more in common with the large ensemble bands from Melodia in the Soviet Union which is I think now does this undermine another of like the pillars of the cultural cold war that like we had these like original bands of just like a guy guys in a garage that just decided it's like no you guys had like extremely like technically talented like uh ac- you know professionally trained like hyper musicians working in like a huge ensemble where they yeah. weren't made celebrity like it's actually kind of more similar in a way and maybe it's like they had to do that to stay ahead of the game because if they just relied on like people doing whatever they want um america would have been regarded by europe as a cultural backwater and they needed yeah. to do something to spice it up and uh, and weaponize you know elements of PR and advertising and perhaps a psych- psychosonic warfare uh, and cult yes. uh, ideology to psyop everyone in America. Um, yeah, and bring in uh, like a bunch of weird like uh, Ataturkist uh, scions <laughs> to like cultivate black music in a way that was like palatable to like white uh, suburban teenagers. <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. possibly which, uh, uh, a tactic yeah. which continues today, really. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> hip hop, uh, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah except, absolutely. uh, yeah, they've they've drifted away from like the Ottoman, uh, Sufi style to like full blown, like Karmatian, like heresy, unknownism, uh, mm-hmm. stuff, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh yeah. Um, uh, still a lot of UFO yeah. worship. That stayed constant. So um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Just, uh, yeah. you know, listen to what you yes. want. Yeah, uh, at least Tom DeLonge uh, is like really the yeah. Talk about the punk psyop. Uh, Tom DeLonge uh, is like the perfect example. He possibly went back in time and, and killed Graham Parsons. Uh, <laughs> he possibly like you know came out of that flying saucer. Oh, just by the way, yeah, like exactly. I think it's funny that Graham Parsons would go out to Joshua Tree because if anybody who's been out to Joshua Tree knows there's a gigantic military base out there like a marine base with like entire like fake iraqi cities there's like there's like middle eastern like model cities that they like run war drills in and there's all kinds of aeronautics testing out there so like hmm, i wonder why that's where you would find a bunch of ufos 
Uh, it's just kind of interesting. Maybe Graham knew a thing or two. Uh, yeah, well, if you watched the phenomenon, you would know that they're just interested in uh, nuclear technology. So they're always trying to shut it on and off. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, you that's know, true. That's why they're always flying over the bases like because they're curious. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. the Zeta Reticulans uh, told, told the Laurel Canyon people to sigh up the world to raise our vibrational frequency uh, to a higher stage of consciousness so that they, you know, we could perceive them. Um, yeah, you know, uh, exactly. That yeah. was probably an opinion floating around at some point. Um, <laughs> it's, it wouldn't surprise me. It's, yeah. Given mm. the average beliefs, uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah. we'll come back to the Canyon later, but, uh, yeah. you know, until then just, you know, stay vigilant over your record collection. Yeah. This old town filled with sand.